The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast on the PitcherList Podcast Network. I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. TC, lots happening in baseball the last week. One of our buzzwords last week was depth. We kept talking about depth and hammering it home. So on that note today, the big idea here is the depth through rotations in the major leagues and the bullpen depth throughout the major leagues. Uh, Next week, we'll probably touch on hitting. So today it's all pitching with some quick notes toward the end. That said, TC, who has the deepest rotation in major league baseball? Deepest rotation. That's a complex question. And I'll give you five. I'll give you my top five here because there are a lot of worthwhile rotations to touch on. So I'll go from five to one and you can kind of give me your, tell me if I'm off track as I'm, as I'm, as I'm going down the path here. So fifth, I've got the Nationals. Now the Nationals, they're a little questionable for a depth list. That's more or less their weakness in the rotation. Joe Ross is set to be their fifth starter. He opted out last season. He was inconsistent before then. I'm a believer in Joe Ross, mostly because of the second half of 2019. But even still, the innings, innings count is going to be a question after not pitching for a year. And they don't really have any quality answers beyond him. Eric Fetty and Austin Voth, they've been fine at times, but they're not ideal. But I put the Nationals on here because, because of their internal depth. Pretty much of their top five, right? They have Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin. They essentially have three frontline starters, right? You'd call those guys, each of them, ones or twos when they're, when they're on. Those three give them really strong high-end pitching depth. The fact remains that if any of them are off the, for a year, as Corbin was last year, or if any of them get hurt as Strasburg did last year, the bottom falls out and and the Nats all of a sudden look like a disaster. And they also have John Lester, you know, in the four spot, which he's consistent now, if nothing else, he'll, he'll be out there every fifth day. What do you think? Are, are the Nats, are they worthy of the fifth spot here? I think so. I think the key that you mentioned is the internal depth, right? The, the guys they already have who are pushing front line or are front line undoubtedly when they're on. I think a lot is up in the air with them relative to how much they can be on right? Like last year, the problem wasn't uh, with Corbin. The problem was not the slider, his, his fantastic unicorn pitch, right? It was really his fastball. The slider was still incredible in getting chases out of the zone, putting guys away, but the fastball just was not there. Uh, the velo did tick up toward the end of the season, which is nice. And you hope that full quote unquote, regular ramp up, uh, regular spring training that it can maintain for most of the year. He usually dips a little bit once or twice for the year, but he could be on, and if he's on, I think that's already a huge deal. It seems like Scherzer is bouncing back. There's a lot of discussion about whether Scherzer is being relied on too much at this point. 
I'm curious what you think about that. And Strasburg, I'm very curious how many innings he throws coming back from injury. But I think Ross, I think Lester behind those three gives them a really solid foundation. This is like high floor type rotation, I think. And I don't think that you're going to find a bunch of other teams that are way better than them. I think it's really just this handful, these four that we're going to get into momentarily. I'm not worried about Scherzer. You, as far as I'm concerned, you rely on Scherzer as much as you as much as you possibly can. Especially now, he's he's. I, I get it. He's thirty. What is he? Thirty five. He's getting up there, but there's been no drop off thus far. And he's such a such a competitor that he's not he's not a guy I worry about. He's somebody that I, I will lean on him as often as possible. He is more or less the reason that there are that the Nats are definitely on this list. That's that's an interesting way to phrase it. That he is the, the reason, right? And uh, I think the only hesitance I have when it comes to a guy like Max Scherzer, and this is why I say a guy like Max Scherzer, not him specifically, right? Because we know he is a machine with all the anger of uh, a, a pent-up human being Yeah, he will uh, come on the mound. You. You, you watch out. He will <laughs> come and get you. Yeah, if, if you're not familiar with that infamous clip, you should find uh, Patrick. You should find Max Scherzer saying he's going to get you. Um but I think the the issue I have, slight issue with guys like him, is that he's 36 and he'll play most of the season at 36. It's just that we don't have a precedent for guys like him. So it's kind of like he's been amazing. He is amazing. Also, we don't know any idea when it could stop. But yeah, why wouldn't you rely on him until that moment comes? That's why they're that's why they're fifth on this list. As long as he keeps being Max Scherzer, they'll stay among the the top rotations. So fourth on this list, I have their divisional rival, the team they're looking up at, three-time defending champions of the National League East, the Atlanta Braves. Now, the Braves, they're kind of the inverse of the Nats in that they have a tremendous number of unproven but high-ceiling arms that are close to being major league ready. I love Max Fried, love Charlie Morton at the top of the rotation. Drew Smiley is a quality arm, I suppose, when he's healthy. But then they have the kids, Ian Anderson and Kyle Wright, are the guys who have the inside track at opening the season in the rotation. But even beyond those two, they have Bryce Wilson, Tuki Toussaint, Kyle Muller, Huskari Noah, and of course, Mike Soroka is lingering back there. He could return at some point from Achilles surgery. Personally, I'm wary of Soroka. I'm not the biggest fan because of his strikeout rates and his, his kind of low up numbers, and I'm not sure yet if he'll be able to sustain it. But as a death piece, he's about as good as you can get. The downside here is that until Ian Anderson proves he can sustain the kind of performance he displayed in the playoffs last year, where he was amazing, the top half of the rotation doesn't quite match up to the other top rotations. How do you feel about the Braves, the Max Freed-led Braves? Well, I think it's bold to say Freed is leading them, given uh, the, the questions you put up around Soroka and saying Anderson still has to prove it, that he can shove long-term over extended innings. So let's start with Soroka. You say that you're not a, a big fan of him because of the, the low K rate relatively. Yeah, his, his so his K to nine was five to seven in his three games last year before he got hurt. And then it was like seven, three, the two years before that. Uh, if you're more of a K percentage guy, you don't want to frame things out into nine inning uh, splurts. So you just, you know, you got guys don't pitch nine innings every day. So it's not as easy to see where that number translates. His K rate, it was 18.6%, 20.3%, 14%. Again, and last year, I think we could kind of write off reasonably, right? It was three starts before he got hurt. Uh, We know he's not necessarily the high K volume guy, 
but uh, nonetheless, not exactly what you want to see when you get a starting pitcher. You want to see it up there around 23%. That's average. And right now, as a major leaguer, Mike Soroka is clocking in below that. Uh, now the question comes in, how much can he limit the walks? Uh, how much does this stuff really hold up? He's been a guy who's been billed as special by teammates, by other major leaguers as he's been coming up. So that much intrigues me, but I think you have something there in terms of the K rate and what that translate translates to over time, because I'm curious how that kind of pitcher survives in this modern baseball landscape that we have, right? It's you, you have high K guys and those are usually the, the high octane guys at the top of the rotation. I think Drew Smiley is really interesting. I'm not sure that he is capable of going a traditional starters length every five days, but I'm also curious to see if the Braves deploy him that way because he was able to throw harder in San Francisco last year when he had a smaller role, when he was coming out of the pen, being used in more of like a, a chunk type guy. And I think that's really interesting for them. And I guess it would depend on how good you feel about their bullpen. A lot of that kind of mentality seems like it could also depend on how much do the rest of the starters hold up through their starts in the week? Because if you have to burn through your bullpen, then you can't necessarily rely on Drew Smiley to give you five or six reliably, right? Like you're going to be in a little bit of a, a tough position at that point. Kyle Wright is the name that is I'm pausing on because I like Kyle Wright coming out of college, but since we've, since baseball has developed, right? And we've learned things about how fastballs move and how his had the high velo and maybe the, the spin, it didn't get the movement because of the way it was coming out of his hand. So you have a strange plane that was giving him kind of like two seam movement on a four seam pitch that will actually, that'll come up in a little bit, I think with another pitcher on another team, but he seems to have figured it out a little bit potentially in the playoffs last year. He did a simple thing where he moved on the rubber and that just allowed him to use the ball better, right? It, you, it's one of those things that's so simple, but it's so effective for some guys where you just move where you are on the rubber and then suddenly the ball is going in a totally different lane coming to the plate. So I think that is especially interesting when it comes to Kyle Wright. I love Ian Anderson. I love his changeup. I just love a good changeup. I think I'm a sucker for one, but I'm curious to see if he can hold up for the whole season two. And Max Reed, same thing, electric stuff. Very curious to see how these guys kind of bulk up, what their next step looks like as, as a group because they have all the pieces. It's just like, how much can we really put it together? Yeah, I mean, uh, what's his name? Kyle Wright, especially. He's he's the biggest question mark of the group. And you, you like to think that he's figured things out somewhat and given a whole season, a whole offseason to work on things, that he'll be able to come in and kind of put it all together for them. He doesn't have to be excellent for this rotation still to work out. Ian Anderson, though, does kind of have to be excellent Everything we've seen from him at the major league level suggests he can be that guy. The changeup, like you said, is awesome, but just about sustaining it. You know, going back to Soroka, the strikeout rates are clearly they're, they're too low, but it's not impossible to succeed that way. I mean, Kyle Hendricks is about twenty percent strikeout rate for his career. Zach Davies is less; he's like seventeen percent. That does suggest that maybe Soroka might be able to come back and be more effective coming back from Achilles surgery. If he's a guy who's pitching to contact and isn't 
doesn't need to have his velocity, you know, quite where it was pre-injury right away. Um, but he's going to be, he's kind of like Kyle Wright in that, like everything that, like anything they get from him is going to be bonus this year. Max Fried is the guy who drives the ship. I think I I love Max Fried. I think his numbers have been, his numbers have been awesome. He was excellent last year, the entire season when he knew he had to be the guy pretty much from the jump. And then he was, he was a monster in the playoffs, right? He, he's the guy who gets the ball on the ground over 50% clip. The defense there is good enough to good enough to back him up. You know who we're forgetting right now is Charlie Morton. Yeah. He's supposed to be pretty good too. I've heard. <laughs> and I don't think they're going to do anything with him, right? Like I love when a pitcher can move and he's reached the point in his career where it's like, they're not going to try to mess with Charlie Morton. We're not trying to get the new level. It's just like, he's Charlie Morton. He's going to go out. He's going to be great. Just let him rip for five, six innings. He's going to be great. Exactly. It's, it's five, six innings. And that's it. Every fifth day. That's all they need from him. Hopefully they have an elimination game or two. Cause that's when he really comes into his own, but he's, I mean, I love him for that stabilizing presence. He should be, what they hoped Cole Hamels would have been last year had he played baseball. I don't <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I have, I have higher hopes that Morin's going to be able to be that guy. Now, about, after the, go ahead. I was just going to say, what about number three? You know, we, we've gotten through the Nats, we've gotten through Atlanta here and how they have these high floors or lots of really interesting guys after a really stable person in front of them. What does number three look like for you in this top five rotation? Well, now we get to the the real stellar units, but I think it's, it's pretty close to the top between these top three, but the team in the third spot here, I would still keep them uh, a step or two behind the top two teams. So I've got the Mets here in the third spot. Now, if the Mets had a healthy Noah Syndergaard, they might take the top spot, but without him, they're a little light at the top, in my opinion. Stroman is the is the wild card. He's the guy that I'm not totally sold on. He's a 3-6-4 fit for his career. He's been remarkably assist- consistent along that line. I, I, the one caveat I have with him is that he is a ground ball machine. I mean, over 60% for his career. Elite. And the Mets actually have a decent defense behind him with Lindor at short. That should improve, you know, give him some more confidence in front of that unit with uh, J.D. Davis and Alonzo at the corners. You worry a little bit, but but they should have a much improved unit just having Lindor in there. In the back of the rotation, they have depth similar to the Braves. They've done a really nice job of building out their their six through ten spots. I mean, Joey Lucchese is a guy who could easily be in a rotation. Uh, Jordan Yamamoto is a guy who's seen some time. The other thing the Mets have done is they've scoured other organizations for further depth arms. Right? They got Sean Reed Foley and Yenzi Diaz from the Blue Jays. They got Sam uh, McWilliams from the Rays. A couple of years ago, they got Franklin uh, Colome, who came for the Phillies. They also have Corey Oswald, who's, who's more homegrown, and, and Jared Eikhoff is the guy who's also in camp. They've really built out their depth beyond the top five, which is a big deal, theoretically, especially going into this season. The top of the rotation, obviously, is nails with, I mean, Jacob DeGrom is the best pitcher in the game. I, I don't think he's given up that that title yet. Carlos Carrasco is one of the most underrated pitchers in the game. I mean, I probably take it's close, but I, but I'd probably take DeGrom and Carrasco over any other top two. Is that more because DeGrom is so good? Yeah, it is more because of DeGrom, but you know, before he had the, before he had leukemia, he was remarkably consistent and I have no, I I believe he's going to get back to being that guy. Then the other big thing for the, you know, behind those three, right. 
DeGrom, Carrasco, and Stroman, they're going to be solid. And now this week they brought in uh, Taiwan Walker. Two years, $20 million in practical terms to be their fourth starter. The, the contract is a little bit wonkier than that in terms of the luxury tax. They're one of these teams that is taking advantage of this uh, kind of new workaround to lower uh, contract AAVs to, to lower their, their luxury tax bill. So the third year in his deal. So he has $10 million guaranteed this year, $7 million next year. And then he has a third year that's a $6 million team option, which by the luxury tax rules, that counts as guaranteed. So for the luxury tax, this is a three-year, $23 million deal. There's a $3 million buyout on that third year, which makes it, which gives him $20 million guaranteed. So in, in practical cash, Walker's going to get two years, $20 million. But because of this, this team option that they tack on the end of it, they're able to lower the luxury tax burden to 7.6 per season, which is a nifty little trick that teams have figured out um, the last couple of years. So the Mets uh, are able to keep their luxury tax payroll. I think now it's around 197-ish. So they should have 13, 13 to 15 million left to spend before hitting that first luxury tax line. So they have room to make an in-season addition if they want. With that said, I mean, Walker is not Trevor Bauer, the guy they wanted to put in this spot. And he is not a um, the most reliable, stable arm because of the injuries. But he should be fine as a fourth starter, right? He had 270 ERA last year between the Blue Jays and the Mariners, though uh, his FIP was just 4.56. And that came after missing essentially two whole seasons, right? He missed 2018 and 2019. If you look at the projection systems, they all pretty much peg him to be somewhere between like a 4.2 ERA and 4.7 ERA. And that's and that's fine for your for your fourth starter, right? I mean, you're not going to get probably a huge amount of innings from Walker. You're going to be careful with him. But the Mets have done a nice enough job building out their depth that they can be careful with him if they want. And then they have David Peterson in the fifth spot, who was fine last year. Uh, you know, he has one of the longest reaches in the game. He's 6'6", and maybe that turns into something interesting. Um, right now, he's just kind of a solid back-end arm from them, which is is more than the Mets have had in the past. So I, I think they're in a really good spot. They have, they have you know, national-style ace front-end pitching, and they have brave-style depth. They're going to be they're going to have a solid rotation. I think solid is the word for me. Solid, the depth. You mentioned up top with the, the Mets here that they have really built out their 6 through 10 spots, which is not something every team can say, no matter how hard they try. They might have some guys who become those guys. Oh, let's remember this guy. Let's remember Jordan Yamamoto in a few years. But I think right now, this year, it's going to be really important to have the kind of depth they do because those innings are going to need to get sucked up. You're Like you were saying, Walker is not necessarily the most reliable guy in the rotation. He's missed a lot of time. He, he made, I think, four starts the last two years before 2020. Yeah. And after that, You've got your Carrasco. You've got like the solid top. You're going to wait on Syndergaard to see what he does when he comes back because coming back from TJ is not always the easiest thing. It's not always like a set it and forget it once you, oh, that surgery is easy. It's gone. It's done. You're back to who you were. But I think it's going to be really critical because teams are going to need probably 850, 860, 870 uh, innings out of their starters this year. And it's going to be tricky if you don't have quite the bullpen depth, if you don't have the rotation depth to get through it, it's really going to be piecemeal, piece by piece, bit by bit. And even like you're mentioning, some of these guys are 4-2 to 4-7. 
depending on which system you prefer, your projection system, the Mets could score more than that per game, right? Like the offense is incredible. It's stacked. So maybe they're playing into that a little bit here too. In that like, we know what kind of team we're going to roll out there every day. And we know that the pitcher, as long as they can take care of enough business, they're going to leave us in a spot to really close out games really strongly. So I, I like the Mets a lot in this three spot here. I think they, they fill in really nicely because the Grom is just amazing. And because he just throws more and more hundred mile an hour pitches every year and how he's doing it in camp. Like it's casual. Like this is just how this is just me playing catch. Do you guys don't do this? You can't throw this hard. So I think he, him as the top tier gives them so much room to create a healthy floor, which I feel like they've really, really done. Yeah. I mean, DeGram is insane. I mean, in some ways, I feel like we we don't talk enough. We should just be talking about Jacob DeGram every single day. I mean, he debuted as a 26 year old. Like, where did, like, he came out of nowhere. He was a college shortstop and just like all of a sudden he is the best pitcher in baseball and has been for four or five years now, right? He's He had some Cy Young fatigue last year even. And Carrasco, I, I would not undersell Carrasco. So Carrasco has, he's averaged over his career three war, three F war per 150 innings, right? So even on a, on a casual or on a conservative estimate for, for how many innings he's going to put up there, he has been really consistent along those lines. And last year he was he was healthy again and he was back. He was back to the guy he was before, right? 291 ERA, 359 FIP. 44% ground ball rate, which is solid. Let's see, uh, almost a 30% strikeout rate. The walks were a little high at 9.6%, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you said it exactly right. Like with DeGrom, they've got so much more leeway. And Syndergaard is coming back. Like he should be back theoretically by June, by July or so. I don't think he'll be the same guy. We were really looking at 2022 to to get Syndergaard back to, to, his, to his regular self. I mean, Tommy John has some some ramp up time. So you really kind of need to get him back this year to be mediocre, mediocre so that he can be good again next year. But mediocre could be enough for them at the, at the, uh, you know, come August when they really do need some innings from other guys. That leaves us with a top two, which is like, if you're an old wrestling fan, this is like a downright slobber knocker. <laughs> so who are who are in your top two here? TC? Yeah. I mean the top two, it's, it's the, it's the top two teams. Everyone's top two teams. It's the only two teams who have captivated us this this winter. It's the Padres and it's the Dodgers. These are the teams with the, with the best rotations, and they have really matched each other. I, I keep going back and forth on them, on who I want to put at the top. So I've got the Dodgers in the second the in the second spot. If we're talking about depth, and the reason is because I only really see the Dodgers going really seven guys deep. Their top seven is insane. But beyond there, there is there are some question marks, and and you know let's let's cover the Padres separately. We'll get to them in a second. The Padres go like fifteen guys deep. They they just have an insane number of arms who could see time in the majors this year, and who you could be excited excited about. For the Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw at the top is insane. He hasn't declined as much as people seem to think he has. He's still one of the best in the game. Walker Buehler is one of the best young players in the game, best young pitchers in the game. I'm excited to see a full season on him because we don't really have the longevity from him yet we just have the Dodgers relying on him regularly as their ace in the playoffs and then Trevor Bauer people hate Trevor Bauer and he loves to be hated and and that's going to feed him I think we probably get another big season on Trevor Bauer after those guys you still have Julio Urias who closed out the the World Series a guy who's been a top prospect for years and years and should get a chance in the rotation this year and David Price is an ex 
uh, Cy Young winner in the fifth spot, who last we saw, you know, only it was only two years ago in 2018 that he was one of the best starters in the World Series. And he opted out last year, so we're going to see how he comes back. But he's as solid as a number five as you could hope for. Then you have Tony Gonsolin, a 3.02 career FIP. He's the guy who'll pitch out of the bullpen for them, and he could be stretched out at any point. And you have Dustin May, who's been excellent. Another young stud who looks like he could be a star if they ever give him, give him the runway. Beyond those seven, you start to wonder a little bit about who comes after those guys. Now, it might not be an issue, right? It's Kershaw. It's... Bueller, it's Bauer, it's Urias, it's Price, it's Dustin May, and it's Tony Gonsolin. After those seven, I'm not sure who the next guy is then. Josiah Gray is the next really exciting arm, but he's probably a year away. Maybe at the end of the year, you might see him get some run. You have Mitch White, you have Brock Stewart. Not a lot of super exciting names. Maybe Jimmy Nelson, if they can keep him through in the organization through opening day. The Dodgers rotation is incredible. This is not a knock on them at all. They're like they're number two on my list. But if we're talking about depth, I do think that if you get down to that eight nine range, I do think that you could start to worry about them. What do you think? I think that's true, and I think that they have enough questions out of that top seven that they might need to get to eight and nine. And this is not an org that generally will let guys come up and just eat, right? Like we talked about. They let Bueller off the leash a little bit a couple of years ago. He threw like 182 innings. He's still projected for almost 170. He is ultimately, I think, awesome, but we're going to see how much he can do again. Uh, beyond him, I'm very curious what Price does coming off of the layoff, right? Like he came in, and I think I think the time off for the guys who opted out could be a really big deal, especially for an older body, and older arm with a lot of mileage like Price. As long as he has maintained some sort of regimen that he's on I think it's going to be great but like you're saying like I don't think they're going to allow Josiah Gray to come up and just throw as much as he might need to I don't know that they're going to be super thrilled if Jimmy Nelson's taking the ball every fifth day at some point if he stays in the org like Dave Roberts I think last week at some point mentioned that oh of course he's in line to to potentially be a rotation piece well that sounds great and I think that's kind of what you need to say but I don't know if that's actually what you want if it happens. And yeah, after that, after those guys like Dustin May and Tony Gonsolin could be a two and three in a lot of teams rotations. But when they're six and seven and then there's nothing else after them for the sake of the Dodgers, the depth might not be there. And they do give us enough questions to wonder if they're the best rotation in all of baseball, which is like really splitting hairs. Yeah, for sure. But the questions are there. I mean, going back to Walker Bueller, he surprisingly hasn't pitched that much. We're used to seeing, we've seen him in the playoffs for it feels like a lot of years now, but in terms of regular season play, you're right. It's that one season, 2019, he threw 180 innings. And other than that, he doesn't really, he doesn't have another full season under his, under his belt. I was telling my dad about, uh, about Walker Bueller in the playoffs, about why he should be watching him. Cause he's super fun to watch. One of the best, in the game, my dad was very old school. He's like, well, how many wins did he have this year? And I, was like, well, I don't know. So I looked it up and I was like, oh, he was 1-0. He was, <laughs> he was undefeated, dad. He was 1-0 this year, dad. And he has 24 wins over his four-year career. And he's one of the best, I guarantee it. And my dad was like, okay, all right, I'll watch the next guy. You know, I'm surprised actually now that you mention it, how little uh, consistency we have with 
this Dodger staff in terms of their durability. Really, none of these guys have done it before. Like Bueller, one time. I mean, Kershaw forever. But he's now at the point where even if he's done it forever, you start to maybe worry about his staying healthy. Urias hasn't been a starter for a full slate. Price hasn't done it in over a year. And uh, Bowers, he's set for a down year. He goes every other year. Yeah, he should have a year in the, the mid-fours this year if, if, if we follow his career pattern. But, of course, they can always go Bauer every four days or every three days, right? Whatever he wants to do. I think it's four. He wants to try it. I, I can't imagine they would actually let him, but who knows? If, if it comes to it, I'm very curious because, like, they've manipulated the IL the last few years. They've been very uh, out front in doing that. I don't know. If a guy needs needs a day off and they need a spot in the rotation, maybe maybe Bauer does go every fourth day once or twice. That would be That would be a fascinating couple of days. But we still have the Padres in the top spot, right? The Padres have the deepest rotation and it starts with, it starts at the bottom, right? It's four and five. There's not a better four and five starter than Joe Musgrove and Chris Paddock. The fact that those two guys are their fourth and fifth starters is just an insane amount of depth. Not, not only that, but they have Mackenzie Gore, who's just waiting, who might be the best starting pitching prospect in the game. He's ranked as high as second on prospect prospect boards. Uh, but he's in, he's in the top 15 no matter who you look at. And even behind him, they have Adrian Morahan, another top pitching prospect. And behind him, they have Ryan Weathers, a guy who debuted in the playoffs last season. I mean, there's 6 to 10 starters. It's basically a top prospects list. It's a souped-up version of what the Braves have. They have legitimate top prospects just waiting for an opportunity, and they have a lot of them, right? Uh, Michelle Baez, Anderson Espinosa, they are stacked down there. And, of course, they still have the top of the rotation. You Darvish, Blake Snell. Denilson Lamet, we're all Cy Young in the Cy Young conversation. Two of them have won Cy Youngs in the past. The question with the Padres and the reason they need this depth is all three of those guys come with a fair amount of injury risk. They have missed significant time in the past. But if you're AJ Preller, the Padres GM, that's why you don't worry about blocking these young arms, right? That's why you go out and you get Joe Musgrove, even after adding Snell and Darvish. And even though uh, they have Mackenzie Gore, they, they have no problem waiting on him probably a couple weeks if need be. He has to work on his defense. He has to work on his defense, exactly. They got to train him up for backup first base just in case. But is there, I mean, is there anywhere, is there a rotation that's any, anywhere close to these guys when it comes to depth? No, you said it when it comes to kind of piecing together what they have. They have an incredibly high ceiling with guys like Darvish and Snell and some of the flash the other guys have shown. They have an incredibly high and intriguing floor with Paddock and Gore, uh, Morejon, who baseball pros- prospectus labeled him as either 120% Wade Miley or 80% Wade Miley, which either way, like that's a major league pitcher. So that's kind of a big deal, right? To, to have that as your back end guy, to have him as your seven or eight. Uh, very curious when they allow Gore to come up, if it's as needed, if it's like, no, we really want to see him do a specific thing or specifically do X, Y, and Z in the actual minors this year, because they hinted at it. The Padres were apparently very locked down when it came to their alternate site information this year. And they were working out at a site that didn't have TrackMan units. So they couldn't be uh, providing data the way other places and other teams did. But the hint was something was off with Gore's mechanics and they started to iron it out toward the end of last year. And you imagine 
again, they're keeping in contact with these guys year round. It's not like the NFL where you can't talk to players at certain points and, and so on. They can only have so many workouts. Like I'm sure the communication has been there regularly, which brings us, I guess, really to the back end of the current opening day rotation with Chris Paddock in that he was another guy who had to figure out his fastball last year. And when he tried to figure it out, he couldn't. What they ultimately learned and what he learned was by going big into analytical data, which he had not done in the past. He wasn't a huge fan of, not that he opposed it, but it's not something he sought, right? What they found with him and what he found with himself is that his four-seamer, which was causing so many problems, was getting two-seam run on the four-seam pitch, which should be elevated, which allowed him to work so well in 2019 with how his curveball dropped, with how his changeup would work off of it. And this, this detail comes about from an AJ Casavell piece on MLB.com where he really got into uh, Rapsodo data, I think it was, and figured out, hopefully, you know, we straighten out this fastball like they did with Lamette last year. And that proved to be so big where it's like, well, at that point, if that happens, that means that we're going to have an absolutely killer rotation one through five. And you, you have to imagine, like, We've mentioned these guys in the past in the sense that like maybe they don't all go out and throw 150 to 180 innings, but at least a couple of them will. And that's going to be huge. Yeah. I mean, if you get Paddock, I mean, he was a 2.4 war guy just a season ago and you expect that he can be better than that. I mean, his control is excellent, right? His He walks what, 5%, 5.3% of batters for his career, which is a great number. And if he's even without the fastball, he's still striking out. He still struck out 23, 24% of batters last year, which is still average. And he can, he can do much better than that. The upside of this, of this rotation is just insane. And the fact that, you know, if you can have a rotation where if you, you lose you Darvish, all that happens is your fans get to see their top prospects. I mean, they're, they're doing some things right in San Diego. And not just their top prospect, right? Like you were saying, a top prospect in baseball. This isn't like calling up a, a bottom feeder org's number one pitching prospect. That Like Mackenzie Gore is a guy, right? He's a dude. We know it. We know it's probably going to play up. Even if the stuff isn't elite, he's got so much of it and he can do so much work with it that, yeah, he's going to be extremely exciting no matter how hard he throws. And like you said, like they're, they're ironing out his mechanics. There was a deal with, you know, repeatability for him that they wanted to keep working out with him. And now they've, they've put themselves in a situation where if it needs more time, if he needs more time to get that regularity down in his mechanics as he, as they come back for this season, they can give him some extra time. And the fact that they are noticing those things now is only a positive sign means that when he comes up, he's going to be ready to go. Right. Like no questions asked. And I, speaking of questions asked, just one more thing on the Padres, how deep do they let Snell go? This is something, again, we've kind of brought it up before, but I like, Right now, as we're nailing the depth that this team has, and we're really going through it, how deep do they let him go into games? You know, I don't know. I haven't looked at Jace Tingler a whole lot to see what his his habits have been as far as letting his guys letting his guys go. But I would think they give him more run than the Rays, if nothing else, just to make the guy happy and to make to kind of prove a point on a national level that he can go that deep if they want him to. I wouldn't think that they'd push him, but I think especially. They'll, they'll use the beginning of the season as an excuse to be cautious. But as they get into it, he'll have some games where he goes where he goes deep. So we have the Nationals at five. We've got uh, Atlanta at four and the Mets at three with the 
Dodgers and Padres really kind of like dueling it out for two and one, but we feel comfortable with the Padres at number one uh, and the, the Dodgers at two for the time being, which really kind of leads us into the relievers throughout baseball, the, the relief cores all through the league. Talk about a, a crapshoot here. Bullpens are the most fungible part of the game. They're the most variable part of the game. They're the most inconsistent part of the game. And that ought to make them the most entertaining part of the game, right? Everybody loves a good bullpen. When they're good. <laughs> when they're good. So <laughs> just got to check in day to day. It's like being a substitute teacher. You got to check in every morning to see if the bullpen's on its game or not. And you make sure they just have a pulse if they're if they're not necessarily on their game. If they've got a pulse, you won't get in any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let me give you some of the top top bullpens here, and, and you can tell me where you want to start. I've got seven teams here that, that I think I want to touch on. So the, the ones that are we definitely need to talk about, the White Sox have put themselves in the conversation with Liam Hendricks, uh, and they have depth beyond him. The Yankees are there every single season. Earl Chapman, Zach Britton, and Just, Will, Justin Wilson from the left side are enough to talk about. The Brewers have two of the top pitchers, bullpen guys in the game, and Devin Williams if he's healthy, and Josh Hader. We have to talk about Tampa because Tampa's entire team is their bullpen. And even though they've traded away a bunch of guys, Juan Alvarado and John Curtis, they have plenty more guys left behind that we can still talk about. Cleveland is a team that we need to talk about. They've been a top five team in the past. James Krinchak is insane. Strikes out 50% of batters. Emmanuel Class A is there. Probably taking on the closer role. You could put the Twins in the, in, in the top spot. They were the best bullpen last year by FIP. They added Alex Colome from the White Sox. Then there's the Padres. Padres are good at everything. They've got a billion guys in their bullpen, and they've got all the young guys lurking still, right? Drew Pomerantz probably takes on the close role. They have Emilio Pagan, Mark Melanson, kind of under-the-radar pickup. Pierce Johnson was great last year in his return from Korea? From overseas. I think he was in the KBO. They recently signed Keanu Kayla. Austin Adams and Dan Altavilla came from Seattle. Who do, you, who do you like of these teams? Where do you want to start, Tim? I think the nature of the beast with relievers makes sense for us to start up top, which we touched on this last week in terms of the Yankees. And now they've had a dominant bullpen for pretty much the better part of the last 20 years, probably pushing into 25 at this point, right? From Rivera to Chapman and all the depth that they've added as they've tried to run through the war zone that can be the AL East. So there are a few teams after that. I think ours are different uh, and probably for different reasons all in terms of what could go right for a bullpen. But really, it's the Yankees with three guys who are expected to tally a full win's worth of value through Fangraphs and the war that they put together. You have Chapman doing it. You have Britton doing it and Chad Green doing it. Three guys putting together what could amount to three wins for the team. That could be like numerous teams' entire bullpens. Like we talked about the depth with the with. Gonsolin and May in the rotation for the Dodgers. It's very similar for the Yankees here in that the guys that are going to go out and, and put on the mound to close out games are going to be guys who do it, who have done it historically, who are phenomenal, who still have all sorts of power and uh, like, or Britain's sinker, which is not that it isn't powerful. It is, but you know, a different pace from green and Chapman and, like you mentioned, Justin Wilson, I think we've talked about that and how that move makes so much sense from the left side, how they now have a third option that they can use between the starters and the closers to bridge that gap. And there's one guy here in their group this year who I think is a lot of fun, who is a total change of pace in Darren O'Day, 
who throws like low 80s. He's got it right. He brings the, the submarine sidearm type stuff coming in at you at all weird angles that you were just absolutely not expecting that you don't see ever except for that guy. I love the idea that he is low octane, right? There, there's a joke. Uh, he, he brought it up himself when he spoke to Lindsay Adler of The Athletic in camp this past week and saying, um, you know, he felt so honored to, to for them for the rest of the pen to let him stick around the gas station, right? All these guys throwing all this gas. And he says, I'm more of a bus stop than a gas station, which is just an incredible extended metaphor. Like Darren O'Day scores so many points for that bit alone. What I'm curious about with the Yankees, and this is why we're starting here with this group. When it comes to a team that's been so good at building a bullpen for so long, in the unpredictable world of bullpens, is it worth taking the field in terms of who could be better? I think probably, especially because with the Yankees, there's there's actually a lot of uncertainty in their rotation that could ultimately affect their their bullpen, right? I mean, beyond Garrett Cole, you have Kluber and Tyon who threw one combined inning last year. You have Jordan Montgomery. You have Domingo German who didn't pitch at all last year. You have Severino coming back from injury. You have Davey Garcia maybe at some point. There's a lot of uncertainty there and maybe not a lot of real um, length. So this is a bullpen that's going to have to work. But to your point, they should be ready. I mean, to be projected for over three war, there were only f- six teams last year whose bullpen accrued six or, accrued uh, three war or more last year. So to, to predict the, the Yankees, those three guys to be in that spot is kind of insane. For me, this comes down to how you trust these younger arms from the right side because I'm all about Darren O'Day. You're right. Like, coming from a different angle, different kind of pitcher, you throw him, you have to see him back in back-to-back innings with Eroldis Chapman and just call it. But it's Luis Sessa, it's, it's Jonathan Loizaga, it's Albert Abreu. Who else is going to be there from the right side? Because Chad Green is going to be—he's going to be worked a lot. They gave up—they gave away uh, Adam Adovino, so they're going to have to use these these younger guys. Because Chapman is Chapman is who he is. He's not going to be used more. He's a one inning guy. Britain's in there for the eighth. He's a similar type of guy. They don't have. Where a lot of these teams, a lot of teams now are stacking these these firemen type, these multi inning relievers, the Yankees haven't really done that. They've really stuck to a inning by inning approach. Some of these guys might be able to do more than that. Loisaga is the one that kind of jumps out as someone who maybe could be that multi inning guy. But some of these younger younger right handed arms are going to have to prove that they're reliable. Yeah, and even feeding into how the rotation could impact the way that this group gets used, like. Clark Schmidt was just shut down for what three or four weeks because of a a shoulder impingement or something because he came into camp wanting to throw so hard to make the team right away that now he's set back and oh by the way what kind of strain does that put on the other guys in the early going and I I know we're talking about Yankee relievers and the depth that they seem to have but that could be poked through but the one thing that sticks out to me, in addition to Schmidt, because he's probably competing for a back-end rotation spot with Herman, uh, who, like, he's got all sorts of issues uh, with DV that came out that the team said, like, Luke Voigt said, I think, uh, we support him, but he's on very thin ice, which is, like, that's a very strange statement and bold to make for a teammate. Uh, and it's like, well, how much does he pitch? Who takes those innings? Who gets to the bullpen in those games? Kluber sticks out to me as a guy he's projected for 155 innings through Fangraph's depth charts. To me, that seems like he's going to be way under or way over. I don't know how he only goes 155. So he could be another wild card. 
And in terms of who does step up, uh, yeah, I mean, afterward, they have Michael King. They've got Adam Warren. You talked about Sessa, who is is another kind of change of pace, bit of arm. Uh, Abreu, who could be a relief profile just because of the control. But if the control doesn't hold up, where does that leave them? Now, as we're talking, I'm like, well, maybe I do take the field. I think I'm going to stick with it for the sake of the Yankees have done it so long. And especially the last couple of years, they just keep finding ways to win. Uh, basically, or primarily that had to do with the offense the last couple of years and the injuries they sustained. But I'm going to say that they're going to find a way with what they have, similar to the Mets, with such a high floor and so uh, such a, an electric ceiling. I think they're going to be in a really strong position to maintain a, a top bullpen. Yeah, they definitely get some some longevity credit based on their their resume from the past couple of years and past, like you said, 20-some years. This is a group that I feel like it's a, it's a high floor group, right? Like, they're going to be fine. The Yankees aren't going to be struggling with their bullpen. It might not be a unit that they maybe can lean on as heavily as they'd like to. That's, I think, a worst-case scenario for them. The Domingo German stuff is, that's a real issue. He was suspended for the year because of a domestic violence incident, an incident that was that involved a teammate and by all accounts, the team is not welcoming him back with open arms and rightly so it'll be interesting to see if he sticks on the roster or how, where he ends up being used. You know, he was a two war guy two seasons ago. Was it 2019? I think in a partial season too. I don't know that he has the upside to make rostering him worth the headache that, that it seems like he's going to cause being on that team. Not to mention the domestic violence suspension is a is a big deal. I mean, the whole thing is just awful, right? And it brings up it it brings up that case for Chapman again, right? Chapman was the first guy suspended under this this current domestic violence policy. I would think that that's something that the Yankees want to put behind them as much as they can. And it seems like Chapman's put that behind him. I wouldn't be surprised if if Herman is somewhere else before too long. It seems like it could go that way, uh, especially like Voight's statement was. I I was taken back in I guess a. a productive way or, or progressive way in the sense that like wow they're really saying it they're really kind of putting the team in the position to say no we wanted this guy because we want the wins but the team is saying well we want the wins too but we need to know who's in the clubhouse and what they're up to yeah and uh, zach Britton said the same thing right he said you don't choose your teammates he said this is a situation of where i don't get to choose my teammates very strong language which doesn't usually guys don't usually come out against teammates in this way they don't and that that note on on the yankees does wrap them up in the sense that we we know kind of the the floor and the ceiling for them and some of the question marks they're going to deal with to me after them i look at again kind of just the stalwart in the sense that this is this job has been done by this guy for a while josh Hader and the brewers he had some weird stuff going on with his fastball potentially last year and he throws from a weird slot and the attack angle is is funky but ultimately, I think he's he's still awesome, and he's still going to be such a, a, a bolstering presence in that pen. I think the big question when it comes to the Brewers is Devin Williams, and if he can repeat his performance, if that is even possible. One, because it was incredible. Two, because it involves that pseudo changeup screwball, which can really kind of goof with a guy's motion or his arms, and if... If he does what he does again next year, that would be pretty mind-blowing stuff just on the premise of, good Lord, how many how many guys did he strike out 
overall. I think it was close to 50%. Like you mentioned it with Karen check. 17.6K per nine, 53% K percentage, 53% of hitters. So if he comes in for an inning, there's a chance he strikes out two guys right off the bat, which is just like mind blowing stuff. And behind him, there's a sneaky little candidate in this pen in Freddie Peralta, who is a guy who pushed away from his curveball, moved into a slider last year, gave him this electric two-pitch mix that out of the bullpen really served him well because he didn't have to worry about the times through the order penalty. And we've mentioned this phrase, or I've mentioned it, he could kind of eat coming out in a multi-inning role and just mowing guys down. In particular, when it comes to Peralta, he's projected for 0.3 F4 from the pen in 53 innings. And then 0.5 from the rotation in 28 innings. One of those things that's maybe just wonky in terms of putting projections together, in terms of putting a depth chart together, in terms of when that opportunity comes. Maybe it flip-flops, but he could be a one-win guy. He could be a little bit more than that, which sounds like insignificant in the scheme of things. But specifically for relievers, that's kind of a high watermark, right? Like you mentioned with the Yankees, they've got three guys pushing that, which totals like what, 24 teams last year so or better than that. So they're really in a unique position. I think it's a matter of opportunity and possibility with Peralta because if he's a multi-inning guy, he's not necessarily going to be able to go four times a week, right? Like he's probably going to need to kind of spread out the opportunities. So with Hayner at the top stacking things, with Williams with an incredible performance that even if he regresses is still probably going to be really good. And Peralta has a bit of a... a wild card for this bunch what do you make of the brewers here is really like a second option behind potentially the yankees at number one well first of all Devin williams will regress there's no there's no question about it i mean because of the short season because he's really his his era minus last year was seven (laughs) (laughs) he's not gonna do that over a full season i mean he was insane there's just not a chance. I mean, he, he produced 1.4 war last year, 22 appearances. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen to Devin Williams. He was so good last year. I can't imagine that that kind of performance is wholly fluky. So I think he's going to be fine and he's going to be a, a big time guy for them. Like you said, Hater has been one of the best. If there's a little slippage, I'm not super worried about it. I mean, he's had so much usage over the past few years that it's natural that he he should come back to the pack a little bit. They can't really rely on him quite so much. The thing I worry about, I mean, the the top half of their bullpen is yeah, it's right up there with with any with any teams. You take those two guys and the potential of of Freddie Peralta, who I think you're right does have some real potential to slide into one of those multi inning roles. Those three guys can do a lot. I love Brent Suter. I think Brent Suter is a, is a guy for them who is who can be a multi-inning guy. He can be kind of a traditional setup man for them. He's a, he's a guy who can kind of step in as a as a the B team Josh Hader. Beyond those four, who are these other guys? I don't know. I don't know who these other guys are. Justin Topa was awesome last year as a thirty year old rookie. Ray Black is thirty years old. Came over from the Giants. Didn't have a great year last year. Eric Yardley. Another 30, I think he's 30 years old. Did pretty well last year. 154 ERA, 409 FIP. Uh, he's in his second season. He's 30 years old. Like, I mean, this is kind of the nature of bullpens, but this is an especially Brewers bullpen, <laughs> right? <laughs> like these guys, I don't know who any of these guys are. They're kind of like the Rays, except that they don't have 
guys who come out and be stars right away. They have, the Brewers just have no name guys come out and they're, and they're typically okay, but they're not they're not always okay. They're not as reliable as Tampa has been bringing these guys up out of nowhere. And so that's where where my questions lie is in the in, is in four to eight right after Suter after Peralta. Now those top four are going to be able to soak up a lot of innings, but they're not going to be pure piggyback styles where they're not going to be able to go playoff style where they go Brandon Woodruff for six and Hater for three. So you're going to have to get some of these other guys in there. Can they get enough from them with really limiting their their usage? And and you know I do think Craig Council is one of the, one of the better managers we have. And he'll be able to figure out some way to get those guys in there, but I just don't know enough about the back end of their bullpen to know if uh, Council is going to be able to rely on these guys if it holds up all year. Yeah, because because like you were saying, they really do they really do piece things together in a similar way to the Rays. They seem to have a, a distinct process, and uh, while they do have the top end guys, it's kind of like you you're not going to be able to ride them all year in this in this year of years where you're going to need to get as many innings in as many places as you can. It'll be interesting to see how they they shape out here. Yeah, I mean the best the best thing about the Brewers is they have a really empowering system, right? Like they empower all different kinds of pitchers to come in and be and hold down significant roles for them. Guys who aren't top prospect, guys who are you know thirty year old rookies. Craig Council will trust these guys and he will empower them to become professional arms, but that's not always enough. I love that point. I love that that idea that they empower the pitchers. And I guess that that brings me into the White Sox with we, we mentioned Liam Hendricks briefly talking about empowerment with the Brewers. He went to codify baseball, I think, uh, before last year or two years ago, which helps pitchers locate their stuff uh, in terms of where it performs best and when they can throw it. And it really I mean, we've seen him the last couple of years. He's been the top reliever or one of the top relievers in baseball all the way there. But they're adding him to Aaron Brummer, to Garrett Crochet, to Evan Marshall, Cody Hoyer. What do you make of the of the White Sox here? I, I feel like they're a sneaky candidate to have an incredible bullpen that we noticed in the middle of the summer. We're like, oh man, holy, holy, but they are really putting it together. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, they're they're a bullpen that I've I've really liked the way they put it together this offseason. Hendricks really does kind of tie the whole thing together. Garrett Crochet has some real upside to be one of those, you know, Josh Hader light, real fireman kind of guys who can come in for multiple innings and be a real shutdown guy. But he's also in his first professional season, right? He's just barely out of college and he had the arm injury. So there are a lot of question marks around whether or not they're going to be able to rely on Crochet to do that. Aaron Bummer is one of my favorite bullpen guys in the game. He's an incredible worm killer. He's been super reliable. They signed him for a crazy cheap contract. Evan Marshall's been solid. He was really good for them last year, and he looks like he can he can maintain that job in the, in the seventh inning. Uh, Cody Hoer, you mentioned him. He was really good last year, right? Twenty one games, twenty four years old, one five two ERA, two seven seven FIP, fifty percent ground ball rate. Like his, his stuff looks good. He looks like he's going to be a reliable arm for them. Jose Ruiz, Jimmy Cordero, these are guys that you can use. I don't see any reason why they can't be a top bullpen. The only reason I would kind of pump the brakes on them is is questioning what is the real uh, growth potential of replacing Alex Colome with Liam Hendricks. Like they, you know, this, this isn't a blank spot that they're putting Hendricks in. They had a pretty good bullpen arm in there last year, and Colome was fine. He did he did his job right. 
they have a better guy in there now, but I'm not sure, especially in the bullpen, how much of a step forward do you really get moving from Colome to Hendricks? I agree with that for sure in terms of what, what the actual bump is. Uh, speaking of speaking of bumps, though, we, we have this bit where you have a bit of a different perspective. You mentioned different teams coming into this about these elite bullpens. So you mentioned Tampa, Cleveland, uh, Minnesota, and, and kind of a wild card in the Cardinals. So how would you kind of sift through those groups? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of good-looking bullpens right now, and it will come down to a lot of, you know, there are always guys who step up, who come out of nowhere, the Cody Hoare types, right, guys who aren't on a radar right now at all, who are going to end up being the fourth, fifth guy out of these pens. The Twins, speaking of Alex Colome, the Twins are a team that I think have done a really nice job keeping a top bullpen, right? They were a top bullpen last year. They're a little bit underrated because I think Taylor Rogers doesn't get a ton of credit as being uh, one of the top closers in the game but he's been solid for them. They, like I said earlier, they led the league last year. Their bullpen, uh, their bullpen FIP was first in the game. Tyler Duffy's one of the best relievers in the game right now. And they have other guys back there who have been really good. Cody Stashik and Caleb Thielbar. I'm not even sure how to say his name. I'm sad to say, but they've been excellent over their first couple of years. 3-1-5 ERA and 2-6-5 respectively. They added Hansel Robles, who's fun and has been a good pitcher in the past more decent distant past than recent past. And and Colome has been a solid guy, right? I don't see any reason why the, the twins shouldn't continue to be a top group led by Rogers and Duffy. So you see the twins coming out as a, as a top group uh, among the, the handful we just listed. Is there anything noteworthy you want to drop in about, about Cleveland, about St. Louis, about Tampa? I mean, Cleveland's the fun one because they have James Krinchak and they have Emmanuel class a two dudes who just have amazing stuff. I mean, Krinchak, Struck out 48% of batters last year. He throws two pitches. He throws the fastball. He throws the curveball. He's got that wacky deceptive windup. K-Rod. K-Rod-like deception. Exactly. And he's been awesome. I mean, I think he's going to be used kind of in that fireman role from what uh, Tito Francona said the other day. It sounded like he wanted to use him in high leverage moments. Kind of thinks of him as their their kind of bullpen ace, which means he's going to be used all over the place. He'll get some saves. Emmanuel Class A. Suspended all of last year, but he was, if you remember, he was the big get in the Corey Kluber trade. Yep. He was the big long-term piece, the, the piece that made it worthwhile for them. He's kind of a one-pitch guy too, but it's an insane one. And he should, I think he'll actually get more saves, would be my guess, between the two. But they also have Nick Whitgren, who's been really good. And give some credit to Oliver Perez, 39 years old. You should look at Oliver Perez's uh, Fangraphs page someday, Baseball Reference page. Dude's been around forever, and he's just—he's good every single season. He's always good, and he's going to be good again this year. I have no doubt. One of the best at putting them away out of the bullpen. Yeah, he's just stuck around. It's a really good player. I still think of him as that, you know, twenty-one-year-old starter with the Pirates, and and still kind of makes me a little bit bummed that he didn't end up being a long-term frontline guy. But he has been good thing not because he'd be gone by now. Staying out of the bullpen, man, thirty-nine years old. Still going. He's been doing it now with the Indians for three, four years. And broke into the league, like you were saying, like 2002. So we're, we're pushing like 20-year career for Ali Perez. Good for that guy. So that wraps up really the bullpen perspectives we're providing here. Uh, in addition to the depth for the rotations, we do have some odds and ends to touch on. Fun, various, um, unfortunate. We can start with uh, perhaps... Kevin Mathers comments, the now former president uh, in a 
So I, I got caught up thinking about how he was talking to a Rotary Club, and it, it just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's probably the best part. Is like he's never, he has no reason to be in the public eye. Nobody knows who he is before before he makes these comments right. to the Rotary Club, and he just you know he just steps in it. Like, what is he doing? Uh, yeah. So and well, here's the thing though. He 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 made a lot of he did a lot of dismissive mentions the other day in the Rotary Club discussion, which is just the most incredible phrase I think I've said in a long time. Uh, he, he was extremely dismissive of some of the efforts of his players, namely uh, foreign players, and they're speaking English, uh, specifically in terms of who they kept down and why, and why they were going to do it again. Uh, today, they had you know more news in terms of union members speaking out and saying like, no, this is actually service time manipulation. Like this is as cold and clear cut as it gets. Uh, so tell me, what do you make of, of these comments? Yeah. I mean, he, he said the quiet part loud, right? Like he said, all the things that we expect management is, is thinking and saying behind closed doors, but he said them for some reason to the Rotary club, <laughs> which again is, is just amazing. I mean, the service time manipulation, we know what's happening, but for him to just come out and say it in such in such uh, specific terms. So casual. Like, it's just kind of shocking level of just kind of a lack of self-awareness, really. Then he, you know, he insults his other top prospect, Julio Rodriguez. He even makes fun of Kyle Seeger for being overpaid. I mean, he did not miss anyone in this rambling speech. I don't know that it's going to have, there's some like hopefulness that, the union will be able to use this in their negotiations for the next CBA that by having kind of a member of the management, you know, of the C-suite on record as saying, yes, we, we manipulate service time that this should help the union get what they want. I don't know that it's going to help them that much. I mean, I don't know that having this out there is that much of a boon for their, for their side of things. But it could be. I mean, it could be one of those things where they need... I mean, it's certainly good for the Mariners because he's gone now. It's certainly good for Jared Kelenek, who now has a much greater chance of making the opening day roster. Yeah. It's good for it's good for Seattle fans who don't have to deal with that way of thinking now. I mean, they've been a mess long-term. So, yeah, get them out of there. Yeah, well, and they haven't made the playoffs in like 20 years, and you've got this super young, promising group. Uh, and it was Kelnick. We, we, I think we skated over that. I skated over that a minute ago and saying like, he's the one who came out and said, no, that was service time manipulation. And like, good for him to have the uh, wherewithal to say that at his age at like 21 to be like, yeah, I don't really care for this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's such, I mean, that, and that has been such a hot button issue for the league since, since the Chris Bryant episode. And to see now, I mean, the Fernando Tatis extension, not to get into this too, too soon, but I mean, what a great example of, you know, you spend all this time manipulating the service time. And for what, for what purpose? Like to get that seventh year, it seems like the Padres did a lot better just by being, doing well by Tatis, playing him when he was ready, earning that goodwill, being decent people. And now he's going to be there for, you know, 80 years or whatever the deal was for. Yeah. You said it, it really does show an incredible contrast because even even when it comes to the Padres, they like their ownership seems to be willing to spend and doesn't really care if they quote lose money on it. Like they want to win. And that doesn't come through any better than with Tatis. Like you were saying, playing him when he's ready to play, paying him when he's totally shown you he's a guy who can do it, 
even like, so the thing about a guy like Tatis, you could say, well, he hasn't really played very long. He, we don't know if he's going to have the track record. We don't know if he's going to, you know, do this, this, that, or the other thing. Well, he doesn't get a chance to do that if he doesn't show up as amazingly as he has to this point. And the other thing about a guy like him is elite players are always elite. I don't think you have to worry about sudden regression from Fernando Tatis Jr. And what he does with the bat or the glove or in terms of marketing. I love that extension. I love like, just pay the man. He's ready. He's awesome. Pay the man. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to lose money on that. It's going to be an amazing deal for them. There's always the risk of injury guaranteeing that much money long-term to a single player. There's always risk with it. He could get hurt. That could regress his skills, but there's no reason to believe that that's going to happen. I mean, and, and on Tatisa's end, dude just made $340 million. I guess maybe if he waited, he could have made, you know, 400 million, 450 million. Like, but why, why even risk that when he's $340 million? He's right. made a lot of, a lot of money and he gets to be where he wants to be. He gets to be the face of the town. He has now more control over his own destiny than he's ever had before than any players had before. He has a full no trade clause. They can't just ship him somewhere. He is in San Diego as long as he wants to be there. And you know, as players can take a lesson from the NBA, right? If he really wants to get out of San Diego, if that gets, if that relationship falls apart at some point, he can force their hand. He can make that happen. But now they can't ship him somewhere without his say-so. I don't know why they'd want to because he's going to be a great player. Players of that caliber almost always make good on those contracts in terms of the actual on-field value. I mean, we look at them after the fact in their later years. We look at Albert Pujols. We look at Miguel Cabrera and we say, look at these albatrosses. And yes, they become that perhaps, but they do usually... Create the create the value necessary in the in the first half of that deal. I was looking at even uh, Ian Desmond's contract because Ian Desmond opted out again. Good for him. And looking at his kind of ridiculous seventy million dollar contract that the Rockies signed him to when everyone but the Rockies knew that he wasn't worth seventy million dollars. And even Desmond, who was who was who has produced negative WAR three seasons in a row with the Rockies, still for his career he's underpaid. Still for his career he's underpaid yep. based on his production. These guys they get. Owners get such an incredible deal on rookie contracts that it's so easy for players to create tons of excess value those first couple of years. Um, it's hard to totally understand the how that value shakes out when you see a guy like Albert Pujols or Miguel Cabrera making so much money and not contributing to the team. But in terms of Tatis... You, you worry about that down the line, right? And that's 30, and he's not even going to be that old at the end of the contract. He's going to be 35 at the end of the deal. Like, he should have no problem producing through that time. Maybe he slides the third base at some time. Maybe he slides the second base. But he's going to be worth the money on this deal, hands down. I have, I have no, no concerns about it. It's an awesome deal. I think it's a great deal for both sides. Yeah. And if you mentioned Pujols, you mentioned Cabrera. If Pujol stopped playing when he was 35, he was still a positive overall on the field and still really ends pretty strong overall. I, I don't see a way that this deal becomes a loss for the Padres, for Tatis, for San Diego, for baseball. I don't, I just don't see it. Uh, but in terms of loss, we've also got a bit of a downer here with Royce Lewis, who had a severe injury today, right? Like, talk to me about Royce Lewis and his situation now and what could be three years really between competitive games. Yeah. Royce Lewis tore his ACL, I think in his knee, you know, former top overall prospect or top overall draft pick for the twins. He has been one of their top prospects. He 
is a guy who should be their shortstop of the future. Some people think he'll move to center field, but if you're if your floor is being a center fielder, that's an exciting player to think about. And this is just really too bad. He had some knee soreness, and then uh, he twisted his knee again, slipping on ice in Texas. Uh, and, and now they've, they've they found the tour the torn ACL, so he's going to have surgery. He's out for it's, it's usually I think a nine month recovery, so he's done for this season probably. So that, it's going to be two straight years of not playing at all. He was the the uh, MVP of the Arizona Fall League back in 2019 after kind of a slow season, but. I mean, he has been a no doubt top prospect for the Twins. He was a guy who was invited to spring training. He was gonna be, he was close. He was probably not gonna be up this year, but is a guy they totally could have seen at the end of the season, towards the back half of the season. And certainly, they were kind of priming shortstop for, to be his spot uh, by signing Angelton Simmons to a one year deal, which you know moves Polanco out of that spot and does clear it up long term for him. Now, there are gonna be some long term questions with Lewis. You're gonna have to wait and see him when he gets back healthy. The good news is he's still super young. He's he's 22. He'll be, you know, 23, 24 when he's able to make it back. So still should be a bright future for, for Lewis, but it's just a bummer to see him lose this much, this much development time. Right. The upside is there, but to have to put it on pause for another year is, is really a frustrating process. So hopefully uh, Royce Lewis, by all means, has an incredible demeanor, and hopefully that applies throughout his rehab. Uh, really, that'll do it for us. This week, remember that next week we're coming back. We're going to go through hitting just like we went through all the depth today with pitching and some quick odds and ends. We're going to do the same thing for hitting next week. You can email the both of us at breakingpodpl at gmail.com. You can send us any questions. We'd be happy to answer them here. Find us on Twitter. I'm at TC Zanka. I'm here with at Tim Jackson Says. My writing's at MLB Trade Rumors. You can find Tim at Baseball Prospectus, and we're both at Pitcher List. We'll be back here next week for more breaking.